Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. Today, I'm joined by the Oscar-winning screenwriter and showrunner Akiva Goldsman, creator of the much-acclaimed show The Crowded Room, which comes to us on Apple TV+, and stars Tom Holland and Amanda Seyfried. High schoolers are busy, but no one's too busy to help fight cancer. The Leukemia and Lymphoma Society is looking for their next student visionaries of the year. Could that be your child? High schoolers who participate in the seven-week philanthropic leadership development program gain valuable life skills like project management, communication, financial literacy, and entrepreneurship. Forming strong teams behind them, they fundraise for the Leukemia and Lymphoma Society in honor of a pediatric blood cancer survivor right in their local community. Most importantly, this campaign is an opportunity for high schoolers to engage in meaningful work within their community and make a real impact on the lives of blood cancer patients and their families. Sound like something your child might be interested in? You can learn more about Student Visionaries of the Year or even nominate a student at lls.org slash students. That's lls.org slash students. Hi, it's Elise Lunen, host of Pulling the Thread. On this show, we pull apart the web in which we all live to understand who we are and why we're here. Pulling the Thread is about big questions, why we do what we do, how we can understand our own experiences within a larger spiritual and historical context, the ways in which we might begin to understand ourselves and each other better, and what's required to heal ourselves and our world. I'll be joined in conversation by luminaries and wise elders, those who have laid tracks in their work and lives to help us bring meaning and understanding to a world that often feels chaotic and overwhelming. My hope is that these conversations spark moments of resonance and plant tiny seeds of awareness so that we might all collectively learn and grow. I think what's interesting about healing, psychological healing, is there's always a narrative. And that narrative helps. So sometimes when you go to therapy and you tell a story and in the story, you locate your despair and it's a knot. And then with the therapist, you work through the knot. You feel better. And was all the pain really attendant to that knot? Or did you just kind of load up that knot with some of the despair that comes from being alive and you kind of work through it and that story helps you live life better. And I think that's true also this idea of how we look at the different personality states and we can name them and we can give them ages. And it's a story that helps us understand ourselves. So says Akiva Goldsman, an Oscar, Golden Globe, and WGA award-winning screenwriter whose credits include A Beautiful Mind, The Client, Batman Forever, A Time to Kill, Practical Magic, Cinderella Man, I Am Legend, The Da Vinci Code, Angels and Demons, Insurgent, an iRobot. He's on Pulling the Thread today, though, to talk about Apple TV Plus's The Crowded Room, a psychological thriller starring Tom Holland and Amanda Seyfried, in which he was both the writer and the showrunner. So first, some warnings. Yes, there are spoilers, though in my opinion, nothing that will markedly change your experience of watching the show. In fact, knowing the backstory made it easier for me to get through the first very stressful episode. It does get easier, and by episode three, I was riveted. 
And also a trigger warning. The Crowded Room and our conversation today explore childhood sexual abuse, which is also part of Akiba's personal history. Okay, let's get to our conversation. Do you live in New York? Yes, I return. I, I moved to California for, you know, two months and stayed 30 years and it was enough. And now you're done. Now I'm done. <laughs> I know many screenwriters. I've never actually interviewed a screenwriter. So I apologize in advance for whatever I may get wrong. But for The Crowded Room, you were also the showrunner, right? So were you I on was. set? Every, oh, but that was in New York. It was on, it was, it was every second of every day, but it was all here. Yeah. Okay. Got it. Yeah, it was, Got yeah it. it was almost a condition of sale, actually. I added my eyes and said, really, we must do it in New York. And is they, that where the original book is set? No, the, the, the actual story, his story is in Iowa, which is really flat and apparently has a lot of corn. I know nothing about Iowa. And since I was smuggling my story into his story anyway, I moved it to where I knew, which is New York, where I grew up. So I like writing in New York or New York, it's better. Yeah. No, I get it. But even starting there, smuggling your story into this story, and I know obviously A Beautiful Mind is also about mental illness, but so much of your work is fantasy, right? You know, I do. I like fantasy. Although when I dig in, almost everything I do has a sort of real reversal of narrative firmament. Like you think you're on the ground, you think you're hanging from a ledge, but actually it's a brick and you're falling, you know, and it's only since doing this that I have started to say out loud why that is. And, you know, it was because I was very close to someone from the time I was eight until I was 18 who was abusing me sexually. And he was somebody who was a very close family friend and I loved him. And then I got it, took a long time to get it. And it was like the world had gone upside down, right? And so that paradigmatic shift, I've actually noticed in my work without doing it on purpose. So it could be nobody's real in uh, A Beautiful Mind or you know, the, a similar sort of version of that in Crowded Room. Or it could be like the shark eating the lead in a movie called Deep Blue Sea or the monster's actually not being the monsters in I Am Legend. For me, it's all kind of the same story, which is you think you know it. I'm working it. I think I'm working through it. Is this the closest thing that you've done, The Crowded Room, to your own story? Yeah. Yeah. 100%. In Beautiful Mind, there were two elements to my childhood that have found their way most explicitly into my work and it's in the mental health stuff the most overtly mental health stuff and one is the very first group homes for what used to be referred to as emotionally disturbed children which is when amazingly the diagnoses of childhood autism and childhood schizophrenia which no longer exists as a diagnosis by the way were grouped together we would never think of putting those two populations together today was in my house my parents founded it it was in brooklyn heights and my mother who was an amazing woman and she was a Holocaust survivor. She had me when she was older and for a while was, you know, one of the world's leading authorities on autism back when autism was not how we understand it today. And she used to write about 
these kids that lived in our house. And there was always somebody hanging the baby out of the window or banging the baby against the wall. And, and I was the baby. So for me, like mm. I grew up with a very labile definition of what is sane and what isn't. And so that helped me with Beautiful Mind. But I was really abstracting. I was taking this beautiful piece of reportage that Sylvia Nasser had written, but that John Nash hadn't really participated in terms of his inner life and made one up. I so I was like, well, this is what it would feel like having been around people with this diagnosis. Maybe this is what it would feel. So it was really sort of more a, it's an impressionistic view, but it's sympathetic and it generates understanding. I hope it seemed to have. When I got to Crowded Room, I started working on the story of Billy Milligan. And he, as I said, is contemporaneous with me, to me. Anyway, we're the same age. And I don't have multiple personality disorder or what is now called disassociative identity disorder, but we had this overlap in terms of sexual abuse. And as I started writing it, my story kept finding its way into it in a very direct way, in a very kind of like moments and songs and things that mattered to me and city blocks I grew up on. And, and so it really became much more autobiographical than I had intended and then when I wrote it, I said to myself, I guess it's an exploration of all sorts of trauma. And I was in the world as we all are today. And I said, and then I will talk about what happened to me, which is not something I've hidden. I've said it before on record and years ago in a documentary, but it's not something I typically put forward. And I sort of thought, well, if you're going to write about shame and you're going to write about complicity and if you're going to write about how we wear the mantle of responsibility for our own abuse psychologically and what we can do about that then you better butch up and say it out loud about you because otherwise you're kind of an asshole you know and so that's been this journey which is not one I planned to take but I guess I did I just didn't tell myself so go back if you don't mind into your story and you talk about this presence of love that didn't seem to be part of crowded room, there was an idea of feeling protected or in need of a savior. But it didn't ever seem to me like that he loved Marlon. Is that a parallel? For me, I don't think he did love Marlon. I think that for me, the piece that was most useful about the understanding of love was less about the relationship between the protagonist and the abuser and more in the relationship of the healer and the heal. Amanda gets to say a version of it, if love can break you, love can fix you. And, it, you know, it sounds simple, but I really believe it, that if shattered relationships can create trauma, we can have better ones and mm -hmm. they can help us heal from that trauma. So Billy's or Danny's reaction is really about the sort of hardwiring of what it's like to be abused by a mother or vicariously by a mother who is allowing a father or a stepfather mm -hmm. to abuse, right? And so by allowing, it's a loaded word, but you know, who is there tacitly part of the system. And the hardwiring between mother and child is so intense that there's hardwired love, you know, that the child needs mother to survive and can't reconcile with this picture of mother who child needs this idea that mommy's hurting you. So that's where the split starts to happen. For me, the part that was important to bring in was that if you have even one good grown-up, studies indicate 
just one good crop and you have a way out, you know, and the fuel of that is love. That's actually required for the remediation, I think, of the suffering, pain, trauma. And so for Danny, for the Amanda character, is she real? No. She's not. She's a composite. <laughs> My mother's name was Mira. Her sister's name was Raya, uh, which is where I took that uh, from. And she's a composite of, of uh, a couple of women uh, in my life who raised me and who loved me. And that idea that you can be loved was really important to me. And there was also a moment in psychotherapy, it's just before the world went into behavior modification and then came back out and then medication and now is coming back out into some sort of slightly return to a more touchy-feely paradigm. You know, that was a time where you could get away with saying that. You could get away with saying you loved your patient. You know, mm. it's just coming back to that now. Wondering what to give your mom or wife or daughter or friend or godmother for Mother's Day? From someone who cares a lot about her bed and sleep, may I recommend something from Cozy Earth? In fact, becoming a mom and suffering through its required sleep deprivation is where my obsession with sleep started. So it's one of those gifts that might really bring things full circle. After all, women in particular are really impacted by sleep deprivation, which has massive implications for our health. Between the hypervigilance of motherhood and the hot flashes of perimenopause and menopause, we get a raw sleep deal. So let me tell you about giving women you love their best night's sleep ever. Let me tell you about Cozy Earth. Their sheets are made from viscose from bamboo, and they are indescribably soft. So soft, like a bed hug, like no other. Now, I'm not the only mega Cozy Earth fan. Every single year since 2018, Cozy Earth products have been named as one of Oprah's favorite things. Oprah picked their best-selling bamboo sheet set because they're temperature-regulating and incredibly soft, and she picked their joggers and their socks and their pajamas. Meanwhile, Cozy Earth doesn't just make sheets. They also make pillows, blankets, and more. Cozy Earth makes their products by sourcing responsibly. They use the best suppliers with an eye toward quality, responsible production, cutting-edge technology, and premium materials. They're also incredibly durable. They get better with every wear, and they have an enhanced weave that is guaranteed not to pill even after washing and drying. All Cozy Earth products can be returned or exchanged within 100 days and include an additional 10-year warranty against defects. This Mother's Day, treat mom to the luxury she deserves with Cozy Earth bedding and sleepwear and prioritize her self-care and sleep health. She deserves it. Don't forget to use my promo code THREAD at checkout for 35% off at CozyEarth.com. After placing your order, select podcast in the survey and select my show in the drop-down menu that follows so they know that we sent you. So speaking of your mom and both of your parents, right, were child psychologists. And when you think about what happened to you, was that in their presence or were they completely oblivious because they were more focused on this home in your home? They were completely oblivious. I mean, and I think that what's interesting about, you know, childhood sexual abuse is it's often somebody who the child knows. I colluded. I was told this was a secret. And if anybody were to find out, terrible things would happen. 
It was our special relationship. And wasn't I special to have a special relationship with a grown-up when I'm just eight and little and struggling? And I've watched the polarization of the reactions to the show. And I've seen some people look at it the way I might look at a Saw movie. Like, I can't watch them. Like, for me, and by the way, you know, I make horror movies sometimes. There's a line I can't cross. Somehow here we have this thing that is so widely occurring, so many children, and we can't see it because it's too hard to, you know, it's almost impossible not to look away. And of course, it's in that looking away that all this happened. So I think they didn't see it. I, years later, I told my mom, you know, literally had to hold on to her. I have children. Boy, oh boy, that's not something you ever want to hear. That your child and on your watch, and you know, you have to help them get through it then. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the guilt and the complicity. And yeah. yeah, I recently published a book. And in the book, I write about nothing that was longstanding, but a molestation event with a friend of a family friend. And I'm a little younger than you, but in many ways, it was a different time, right? Like nobody was watching us. Nobody was paying attention. And when I had originally told my parents, they knew exactly who I was talking about. He didn't live in our hometown. And the response was, oh, yeah, we always thought he was really weird, you know, but we were unsupervised in his presence. And it's been interesting to watch that, again, it wasn't a grievous assault, as far as I know, but to land in the community and to have the consternation of the other parents around this, and they're more affected in a way than I think I am, if that makes sense. I had this revelation when I was doing a therapeutic MDMA session, and so Uh as it came up, I did not feel re-traumatized. right. So maybe I sound insane talking about it, but I was able to be with myself and recognize what happened and downstream effects of it without feeling like I need to know where this guy is and I need, you know, to persecute him and justice. Similar to you, I, in that moment, felt my own power, my own complicity in inspiring his attention. And, you know, and- very hard. That's hard. Yeah. Very dark and, and extraordinary and interesting. And, you know, and, and of course, we're children, so we should be protected from the entire range of exploitation. And so often children aren't. And this idea, which is what you're talking about, I think the MDMA part of it is significant because I think what's really important is to begin to be able to look at yourself with compassion and forgiveness, right? Like this whole thing is about compassion and forgiveness. We feel such shame and that shame becomes toxic and you can't ever really fully be with yourself if there's that sort of ball of shame in there. So I think what's really interesting about MDMA, you know, there's something called EMDR, which is a kind of tappy tappy thing with, you know, clicks in the ears or whatever. But there are things that allow you to process or re literally remember it without re traumatizing. Because the trick is to be able to look at it and to look at it with love, compassion, forgiveness, or at least neutrality, so that you can start to integrate it. Because right now, 
until it's integrated, it's radioactive, right? We take the things that are our secrets and we just hide them. And we spend all our time consciously or unconsciously protecting them. So in a weird way, the secret becomes the knot around which the tree grows. And it's not until you can kind of neutralize it. Making the show in some ways was at times vaguely re-traumatizing because really just because of the, the editorial process, because what you have to do when you're cutting a scene, especially like a scene where Emmy and Amanda are talking about like the cycle of abuse. And all I can do in the editing room is sit there when Tom is confessing as Danny at the end of his feelings of complicity as Adam at the end. All I can do is keep watching it to see if an extra second here will make it hurt more or less. Or in a, And so you want it to hurt as much as possible. That process was a little bit, I, I would happily never do that again. But, you know, mostly I'm like you. It's a thing to say so that people can understand, so that it it doesn't have to live inside you in a way that is protected. It's just a way of saying, hey, it's okay. Things happen to people. This happened to me. Let's talk about it. So how did you, when you had this moment when you were 18 and you had some sort of revelation, what did you do then? And what was that experience like? And then how have you healed? Or is it an ongoing process? Well, I think it is. I I think healing is, I think for me, it's a journey. But, you know, one that I've attended to with gusto. I've been very lucky for the most part to have found really good therapists. I love a feeling. There's no feeling I won't talk about. So I like to talk about a feeling. I am interested. I try to remain curious over periods of time, looked at myself and said, oh, so thought that just because you separated from that person, you're fine now. And then I'm in my 20s. And I'm like, well, you're doing a lot of drugs and you're drinking and you're basically sleeping with any woman who will look at you. So maybe you want to look at that, right? And so you process that. And then, you know, and over time, you work through all of it enough to be able to integrate the pain. And for me, finally, to turn it into an object, you can't fix it but you transform it. My wife died some years ago. And it was clear to me that if you don't actually turn that into something that you can find grace and courage in, you don't stay alive. It's too hard. Mm -hmm. You know, so if you get lost in the pain of having been abused, it's too hard to be on the planet. It's why some of us don't. Instead, recraft it. If you can, like try to get your hands around it, turn it into a painting, a song, a scream, a screenplay, uh, a conversation. And that changes it. It takes the energy that was so hurtful and converts it. You know, and I did all the other things that you do. I reported the person. I Somewhere I have, I found it recently, the framed notice of the report. And you do all these things that acknowledge to yourself that you're healing, I think. And then you just do the work. Yeah. I want to talk about Danny's diagnosis. And in the context, too, have you encountered IFS, internal family systems, and Richard Schwartz's work, speaking of MDMA, because I think before they submitted it to the FDA for the protocol, IFS work was supposed to be the sort of therapeutic partner. I think it's what works, which is this idea that we all have parts. We all have these parts in us that we cordon off and protect. We have these firefighters, we have managers, and then we have these abandoned parts from our childhood. 
So it, in some ways, it's an argument for some variation on a spectrum of multiple personality. And Richard Schwartz, who's amazing, if you don't know him, would be a fascinating person for you to talk to because he does a lot of work or has with pedophiles and other people who are locked up, literally, but work doing parts work to access where they invariably were injured and traumatized and what part is sort of like loose in their psyche, inflicting harm on other people. So it's a really interesting system that I think can help anyone understand the on-ramp to how you get to splitting in the way that Danny has split. Was that part true? The show is sort of a reflection in some sense of exactly what the verdict was, which was there was no way to sell it scientifically. So the jury was sold emotionally, right? To, again, multiple personality disorder, as you know, no longer even exists, right? As a diagnosis, it's disassociated by identity disorder. And, you know, and so what we had to do in this, and which is why we had a, a council of really good psychiatrists was to try to be true to diagnostic criteria and the knowledge that we had then but also not steer somebody way wrong because, you know, these things are also helping objects. That's the outcome goal is that somebody will see it and understand themselves or someone else more as well as be entertained. So we wanted to be careful not to suggest something that might no longer be uh, clinically indicated today. And this is in line with what you're saying. You know, there, certainly there's a notion that fusion is not really necessary. In fact, there are stable systems, you know, that function quite well. That just wasn't the notion then. When it comes to sort of the map of the mind that you're talking about, which is the idea of sort of personality states or the anthropomorphization of pieces of us and our feelings and our emotions, I think it is a good precursor to understanding splitting, but I don't think it's the same because I think that we all actually develop different pieces alongside other pieces, but there's a semi-permeable membrane. I think that in the case of splitting, it's starker. It's sort of a process that's been jury-rigged because of trauma, which is different than having some trauma in a system that's trying to deal with it relatively organically. You know, and I think what's interesting about healing, psychological healing, is there's always a narrative. And that narrative helps. So sometimes when you go to therapy and you tell a story and in the story, you locate your despair and it's a knot. And then with the therapist, you work through the knot. You feel better. And was all the pain really attendant to that knot? Or did you just kind of load up that knot with some of the despair that comes from being alive and you kind of work through it and that story helps you live life better. And I think that's true also this idea of how we look at the different personality states and we can name them and we can give them ages. And it's a story that helps us understand ourselves. I know everyone says that your 20s are supposed to be the best years of your life, but that wasn't the case for me. I kind of hated my 20s or found that decade really hard. Sensing that I was in the dumps and needed a timeout, my late brother-in-law and best friend Peter took me to France one year. Officially, we were going to see and stay with his aunt, but really I think he wanted to cheer me up. We went to the flea markets in the countryside on the weekends where I found a set of very old religious medals. I decided to invest these medals with the belief that everything in my life could shift, 
and over the following months, things started to move. I kept these medals close and then figured out how to frame them myself. I did this badly, but well enough that they could stay with me ever since. When Peter passed away in 2017, these medals became even more precious to me, earning pride of place next to my desk. They're a talisman of luck, yes, and also of Peter. But my poor framing job from 2002 started to fail recently, and so I decided to entrust my medals to Framebridge to have them framed right. I've been having Framebridge frame all my family photos for years. You can upload digital prints, and they do a beautiful and speedy job, making them the perfect place for holiday gifts, as my mother-in-law and parents treasure photos of my kids, or at least I convince myself they do, and they confirm this for me. But Framebridge also takes on objects that are typically expensive and difficult to frame, whether it's menus, tickets, original artwork, personal milestones, hotel keys, keys to your first home, or in my case, medals. You can easily order online at framebridge.com or visit one of their 20-plus Framebridge retail stores. They provide free, secure, prepaid packaging for physical items. They will then frame your piece and ship it to you in days. It's easy, it's affordable, you know exactly what it will cost up front, and they offer every conceivable framing option. Everything I've framed has always looked even better than I expected. Plus, if you're not 100% happy with your piece, they'll make it right. See why Framebridge has been trusted to frame over 2 million pieces. Visit framebridge.com or a local Framebridge store to get started and custom frame just about anything. That's framebridge.com. One thing that I thought was really beautifully explored, and I'm assuming it's somewhat accurate, is the way that, one, I think it's beautiful that Danny is a boy, because I don't think that we spend enough time culturally acknowledging the fact that this happens to many boys and men. I don't know quite the rates. I think it's more likely to happen to girls, I would imagine, but it's very common, right, for boys, and yet often totally stuffed and not discussed. And then I thought that there was a really beautiful way that the show explored homosexuality and the way that showed up in different parts, I thought was very deft. Can you talk a little bit about how you guys determined to do that? Sure. I mean, you know, it's very interesting because Billy Milligan, the character who Danny is based on, you know, had at least one female alter who was a lesbian and that construct and how she felt about sex. And we, there's a lot of interpolation here because, you know, Daniel Keyes writes the book. There's not tremendous amounts of documentation. We're starting to see a very different, forgive me because I'm stereotyping gender wise, but a very, a much more female, a much more open, a much less predatory kind of relationship to sexuality from this boy who's been raped, right? So this splitting is so interesting. There's always this interesting need to protect what's good in us. I I, I don't know why or where it comes from, but as if there's some light in there that doesn't want to be snuffed out. So this idea of being able to find sex and sexuality away from what had been done to him, that it was, to me, sort of a promise, again, of there are ways through this. For me, 
Danny's neither straight nor gay. Different pieces of different parts of Danny are all those things. And I think if you were to take a very clinical view of the diagnosis and go away from having any sort of empathetic response, you would still admire it because in a weird way, it's all the things a human being can do. It's why it was the, it's often been the source of movies about magic and monsters, right? Because it reaches beyond what we think of as typical. It's why at the end of Split, James McAvoy is crawling on a ceiling. Legend has it that, you know, M. Night was going to make this movie and then he made that one. Because what happens is you sort of get this sense that we are capable of so much. And in the shattering of the psyche, some of those fragments become revelatory. Like he don't, you don't have to be one thing or another. Straight and gay becomes, yeah, I mean, obviously it's politically charged right now, but I'd like to think over the course of a lifetime, you know, those distinctions start to blur and people are just people. Yeah. yeah. No, I think that everything becomes more mutable, right? And it's true. It's like within Danny, you have a, a straight kid you have a lesbian, you have a heterosexual, I mean, you have every variation of expression within this one child in a way that I think was fascinating and really well done. It's a charged moment, of course. Never has the internet reacted more. Really? What was the reaction to that? Like so much of the show polarized. It was But wait, no. And oh, God, thank you. This has been my experience with the show in almost every facet. Kind of rage and a kind of gratitude. Now, Beautiful Mind was a different time and there was no internet. But people have reached out to me and to Tom and say the show saved their life. You know, and I remember that from Beautiful Mind, but it was anecdotal. This is now there's a flood, right? And you're reading and it's people telling you but they're typing it so they're not looking into your eyes and they say stuff that's amazing and it was around the idea of being complicated sexually which this show touches on you know but with sort of a white male straight icon is too strong a word but you know tom's a movie star right you know they think of as spider-man you know and suddenly he is there in a men's room you know in makeup having sex and that's either thank you Or how could you? Yeah. And there's been a lot of that. It's been fascinating. I mean, the show is about integration, right? It's about reclaiming wholeness and bringing all of these parts back into a functional whole. And we're just not good at that culturally, right? We All we want to do is excise and project and disown the parts of us that we think are unsavory or bad, or gross, or demonic, or monstrous. We've never seen more of that than we're seeing in the collective, right? Like, I don't want this, you take it. And I disown these parts of myself, you take it, so that I can despise you. So I think I'm not surprised that the response is polarized, because I think that there's a certain subset of people who don't want to live like this anymore and are tired of demonizing the other and or ourselves. And then there are people who feel like they will literally die if forced to reintegrate. I think we are as confusing to them as they are to us. And I hate to use the we and they, but I know the whole purpose of storytelling is to be an antidote to otherizing. That the reason you tell stories 
is to climb into other people's skin. So you can approximate what it feels like outside of your own experience so that you can connect with someone who you think is different, right? It's the exact opposite vector. Like it's the intention is entirely different than what is so common culturally now, which is exactly what you're talking about, which is how do we take that which we don't like or don't understand, make it outside of us, make it other, and not look at it ever again. And if we could lock it up and set it on fire, that would be better. And I don't understand it. And yet I don't understand it with the same fervor that someone doesn't understand my desire to include. I don't know what happened. I don't know how to bridge this gap but it is as prevalent as I, you know, I'm 61. At least you felt in the 60s and the 70s, there was an intention to heal. Like, I'm not even sure that's there anymore, culture. What do you think has changed? Is it because we used to sort of watch these movies in the theater or our TVs in our homes and be able to process them in silo and read some critical coverage and in some ways be told how to think or contextualize what we're experiencing. And now it's just so fragmented, so fast, so there's nowhere to hide. What do you think is happening? I, I don't know. I mean, I, I think that part of what's gone on is a need for immediacy. And I think that there's something fundamentally damaging than we think when the distance between stimulus and response gets so, so tiny. Like my girls just are used to pressing this thing and getting it out there and getting it back and getting it out there and getting it back. And I would never have been a writer if I grew up today because I only wrote because I had no friends. There was no way to talk to people. So I would go sit outside and like write on a napkin and hope somebody thought I looked cool, you know, and then maybe they would <laughs> talk to me. It's in the time between things that we used to form opinions. And there is no time between things. So I think that what's happened is instead we have kind of unconsciously or de facto curated a set of responses that we're supposed to have based on some clever algorithm. And so what happens is before I know what I think of a thing, I'm told what everybody in my cohort thinks of a thing. And frankly, it's quicker and easier than figuring it out myself. So I think it's some of it's just speed. Maybe two generations from now, the kids will be able to process in that mute gap, but we can't. Yeah. We were raised that way. And uh, yeah, and by the way, and the ones that are young now can't either. Maybe we will evolve, but it's easy to say people have stopped thinking for themselves, but people have stopped thinking for themselves. I think that's true. I also think that we're engineered to sort and categorize and we want simplicity, right? And we want to understand things in the most binary black and white ways. And then you have these stories about a kid like Danny and He's a victim and a villain, right? He's oppressed and he's an oppressor. But even thinking about you telling your story and talking about your own complicitness and your abuse, these things are so complicated. And I could argue, we could argue with you about that, your perfect victimhood. It's just not satisfying. It's just too overwhelming, I think, when all we want is certainty. It's like, tell us who's good. Tell us who's bad. I think obviously why we like fantasy, right? And horror. The heroes are clear. The villains are clear. Don't make me, not even think, but don't make me empathize 
when I've been told there's nothing worse than empathizing with an oppressor, particularly in this moment in time. Yes, I think that's true. And I think it is fascinating that we are, for good or ill, hardwired to believe in this kind of binary world and fairness, this kind of, I, I think to myself, you could fix everything if you just instituted a rule of fairness. Like forget nice, forget compassion, forget all the things that I can. Let's just, if everybody was just, if the world was just fair, it would be so much better than it is, right? The world's never been fair, but it's built into us. And the upside of that is the striving for it. The downside is the blaming when it doesn't happen. And so it, this idea of, it's what you were talking about earlier, of sort of taking that which is not what we want and not taking ownership of it, but making it someone else's fault. And this is a complicated because without the desire for fairness, you wouldn't strive for it. But if you can't tolerate the disappointment when it isn't fair, then you'll turn the world into an enemy. And that's what it feels like today. Like the world is everybody's enemy. I'm exceedingly careful about what I buy not only because I live in a 1,500-square-foot house with children who sure have an awful lot of stuff, but also because I try to be conscious about everything I use. In short, I want to use everything I buy. In addition, thanks to a decade in the wellness industry, I am very keyed into product claims and product content. This is why I like Ritual's Essential for Women 18-plus multivitamin, which is clinically backed with high-quality, traceable key ingredients in clean, bioavailable forms. I also like their Symbiotic Plus 2, which is a probiotic that's simple and effective. Ritual makes the most elegant multivitamin around. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus has everything you need, specifically nine key nutrients in two capsules per day. Their unique beetroot oil is so slick it's actually patented, and their capsule has a delayed release design, which is brilliant and essential to help make it gentle on an empty stomach. And Ritual studies their vitamins, which is not the standard in the industry. Ritual conducted a university-led clinical trial for their Essential for Women 18 Plus multivitamin to assess its efficacy. The results, it increased vitamin D levels by 43% and omega-3 DHA levels by 41% in just 12 weeks. As most of us are getting far less sun right now, vitamin D supplementation is essential. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is one of the few women's multis that's USP verified, meaning what's on the label is what's in the formula. Only about 1% of supplement brands on the market have the USP verified mark. It's also soy-free, gluten-free, vegan-friendly, and formulated without GMOs. Did I also mention that Ritual is a certified B Corp and female-founded? Nothing makes me happier than these two facts. No more shady business. Ritual's Essential for Women 18 Plus is a multivitamin you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month at ritual.com slash thread. Start Ritual or add Essential for Women 18 Plus to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash thread for 25% off. How do you think about, I'm sure you're exhausted from this particular piece. I also want to know if it was hard to convince Tom to do it. I mean, I, that must have been an incredible workout for him. I'm sure Amanda was like, this is a dream role. And Tom was like, I mean, 
I don't know how he did that. Tom had never done television before. By the way, I hadn't done that much television, but I knew what television was. And Apple's like, it's like a 10-hour movie, right? And Tom's thinking it's a Marvel movie, right? What I mean by that is, you you know, you shoot 30 days and some days are green screen and some of that, and then some days are crawling up a wall and a lot of days are stunt double. And this kid is in here and he's now doing 135 days or 137 days where he's in almost every scene. You remember for the same amount of shooting days, basically, you're getting 10 hours, not two. So the number of scenes you're doing every day is tremendous. He's carrying all of them. He's playing umpteen different people. And I mean, I, I have said it before, this kid can do anything. It was so awesome. I mean, it was so hard. It was so hard, this show. And he's got this work ethic. Like everybody else who came, I would say about Star Trek, you only work on Star Trek because you like Star Trek. It's self-selected, right? So the same thing about the show about <laughs> trauma and sexual abuse, which is you only show up because you got a story to tell, right? Everybody, the grips, like, like it, God forbid we should stop for a minute. Everybody's like in an encounter group, in a social worker on set the whole time, except Tom. Tom's just like a decent kid from England who's like, how did I get here? But he has this amazing kind of like, we're going to get through it. And he's really talented and he's kind. And he really started to understand the character in a way that we wanted the audience to understand the character. And that became the, the gift of him because he was learning and creating in the same way that we wanted the audience to feel and react. So he had no attachment to this material as far as you know? No, none at all. I reached out to him. When I had started, I had written a couple of scripts and Apple had said, let's make it. And I, he was the guy I went to and he was like, yeah, this seems fun, mate. It's important. <laughs> and Tom, he does have mental health charity. Like he really cares about mental health issues. He didn't know this piece, but we talked a lot about what it was going to be. And he ended up being a co-architect of it. And he too wanted that really noble thing of if we do it right, somebody who didn't think they could talk about a thing will talk about it after. And I'm sure it's a sort of show that's very, I mean, you've mentioned the word polarizing, but it's probably magnetizing, I would imagine, or in incredibly repellent. Yes. When I started, I had to stop halfway through the first episode and then I had to go and I was like, I need to understand what I need to read. And then I felt equipped and then it started moving really fast for me. But I can imagine a lot of people are like, I'm out. I cannot. I don't know how that coincides with like whether the people who have been abused are more likely to make it through or the opposite. My anecdotal poll, my non-scientific poll, if you have abuse in your past or in your family, you stay with it and it matters to you. If you are female, you're more likely to stay with it than if you're male. If you're gay, you're more likely to stay with it than if you're straight. Mm -hmm. White men, straight white men was probably our smallest demographic. Yeah, that doesn't surprise me. It's tough. It's really tough. You don't write rom-coms. Like, have you ever <laughs> written a comedy even? No, no you're, you're like, I'm not funny. I'm not, I'm not funny. funny. <laughs> I mean, I, I am not funny. I can write a funny line. I mean, I'm funny at like dinner, but no, I'm just not going <laughs> to is that what you wish you could do? Like after a project like this, what's how do you restart? Or is this just a continuation of your own exploration of identities? Where we started, you know, growing up in a house full of 
other mentally ill children and not even having any idea of normal, I would imagine, right? Or quote unquote normal. No idea. And by the way, I still find the definition vaguely dubious. I am so lucky that I get to do it. And by it, I mean, it's a little bit of, and it's, it's funny, I was talking to somebody today about how the entertainment business and sort of the movie business itself and movie and TV keeps shifting. And in the late 80s, I got into the business in the 90s, where if you could, you alternated. And today, you're supposed to have a brand, you know, and people are identified with a kind of a thing. Crowded Room was, in some ways, the hardest thing I've ever done because it was that personal and it meant that much to me and it was an attempt to say out loud a thing I hadn't really said in that kind of form and and, and to open up in, in that way and, and that was really extraordinarily complicated and I am grateful for the chance to have done it I do not want to do it again certainly not now now I want to you know have some zombies take over a city and have Will Smith chase them. I want to have Keanu Reeves have some magic. Yeah. You know what I mean? And just live in the make-believe of it and smuggles the stuff in that matters in five years. If I have another step to make on this other more personal journey and somebody wants to let me make it and I know what it is, I will. Otherwise, I'll write a book. All right. I know we're almost out of time, but I need to understand as someone who has never, I've seen maybe two episodes of Star Trek in my whole life. And I think both of those when, were when I was a kid. But what is that? What is the appeal? Like, is it the sort of thing if anyone starts watching Star Trek, like you will become a Trekkie? But what is it? What is the mental? Definitely it started, I think, as like the Outsiders Club. It was, you know, back before being a nerd was cool. It was really not cool. I know it's hard for people to remember that, but it was full on, like, very sci-fi, what passed for intellectual on television. And it was a, a refuge where, you know, if you were teased all day at school anyway, this would be the place where you would go and maybe talk to other people ultimately who were also teased at school and liked it. Over time, I think what really sort of abided is it's utopian and it's stubbornly and beautifully utopian. Uh, It suggests a framework for a future where, and it has always been multicultural, everybody is at their best. And yet within that structure, things are bad and we have to fix them. And science fiction then becomes this great version of an allegory generator because you go to a planet. There's a very famous episode of the original series, which is really quite good. It's this giant fight between these two last survivors of a race, half black on one side, half black on the other. And they're fighting and they're all the way through. And and finally, by the end, Captain Kirk says some version of, I'm going to get this totally wrong, you know, some version of, well, why do you hate him so much? You're the same. He goes, the same? as Frank Gorshin of Riddler fame, or she's black on the right side and I'm black on the left. You know, and that was the, and for that, they had destroyed each other's race. And so it's a, it was like the Twilight Zone and that it was very happy to wear its, the moral of the story on its sleeve. They were cautionary tales and they said that in the future, we will fix the problems that we have today. And the future will also be a way of looking at the problems we have today 
and seeing them from a safe distance so we can learn how to fix them. And it's fun in that way. It's delightful. It's the opposite of dark. It's hopeful. Yeah. So it's the medicine maybe that we need and we didn't know we needed it. But I'm going to start watching Star Trek from okay, so the strange movies new, back. Yeah. <laughs> watch Strange New Worlds. That's the show that you want to watch. I watch episode nine of season two because it's a musical. Okay. That's where I'm going to start. You're going to start. The Crowded Room is not an easy watch, but it is a beautiful story that's complex and confusing at times, although the resolution is near. And I think that Akiva and Tom and Amanda and Emmy, who's amazing as the mom, really stunning performance, create something that is alternately incredibly complex, which is hard to do in a culture that is engineered towards certainty and all the black and white thinking that we were talking about in our conversation. But it does cut through with a type of moral clarity while also giving voice to the fact that life is so messy, so messy. So if you're looking for something to watch, I recommend and would love to hear your thoughts about the show. If you like today's episode, please rate and review and tell a friend. You can find show notes and full transcripts of the episodes at elisalunan.com. While there, please sign up for my Substack. I send a short note every Wednesday about topics that are aligned with this show and a deeper dive most Sundays. Or follow me on Instagram at Elise Lunen. And finally, if you haven't already, please consider picking up a copy of my New York Times bestselling book, On Our Best Behavior, The Seven Deadly Sins and the Price Women Pay to Be Good, available wherever you get your books. It's an exploration of how women have been conditioned for goodness, men for power, and all the ways we've been programmed to police ourselves and each other according to these cultural ideas of what it is to be a good woman. I'd also like to give a huge thank you to my sponsors who make this show possible. Please support them the way they support this podcast. This has been a presentation of Cadence 13 Studio. If you enjoyed this episode, please listen, rate, review, and follow Pulling the Thread. Available now for free on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Odyssey, or wherever you get your podcasts. I want to give a shout out to Phil Svitek, Lauren LaGrasso, Mary-Kate McDonough, Ali Brockman, and the entire Cadence 13 team for producing these episodes, and to Valero Duvall for my key art. Take care of yourselves. I'll see you next time.